today's episode of the Nana Waste Podcast, I have the privilege of chatting to Tara Ashley Ames. She is a physiotherapist who was employed by the Eastern Capes Department of Health, but unfortunately, her and 200 other employees have lost their posts due to mismanagement of funds by the Department of Health. In the episode, we'll cover who Tara is, where she studied, what she studied, and why she's passionate about what she has studied. We'll also uncover some of the things that could be done in order for them to proceed and actually employ as well as benefit the people of Eclair and the rural Eastern Cape. And we'll also uncover some misconceptions around what physiotherapists do. Hope that you enjoy. Cheers. So I'm here today with Tara Ems, uh, also known as my little sister. Um, she's part of the Ems clan, which uh, are my adopted family. And obviously, I know a lot about you, Tara. I've seen you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to lie and say that I've seen you. I've even changed your nappies, but no, um, that would make me <laughs> much older than I am. But um, for those who don't know, who is Tara? So, uh, yeah, as Nana said, I'm Tara Ashley Ems. I go by Tara. I'm the little, the baby in the Ems clan, but I am currently a post-comp-serve physiotherapist who is unemployed. <laughs> um, but not much to me, just very passionate about healthcare and giving back to the rural community and basically community health and education. Um, yeah, that's basically who Tari is. Um, mostly just focus my life around physiotherapy and very happy to be a physiotherapist and fighting for, you know, just really rural communities mostly. Yeah. Okay. And where did you study? And I guess, how did you find your degree? Um, was it something that you always wanted to do? Um, or is it something that sort of grew on you as you maybe got older um, in high school? So, um, okay, so I didn't know what I wanted to do at high, um, in high, during high school. So I actually took a gap year. I did know that I wanted to help people in a way, um, but wasn't too sure. I got into physiotherapy by complete chance at WITS. So I studied at WITS for four years. Um, and, you know, I went in, got the, told I had a, they had a position for me the Friday before varsity was going to start. I was just going to do a BSc. And ever since the first day in that physiotherapy lecture hall, I never looked back. I loved every moment of it. I was, thought I was going to be an occupational therapist, but eh, I think the man above knew I didn't have the patience, <laughs> so <laughs> much better suited as a physio. But yeah, the four, four years of studying um, at WITS was really challenging, the last two years in particular. Um, you know, and also going back mid-pandemic, well, the beginning of the pandemic was really challenging with the first varsity to have gone back and students to go back into the hospitals. And so there was a lot of just so upside down and very very daunting and draining not physically but emotionally and everything so but we came out strong and we all get graduated online <laughs> so that was fun but we also yeah um this was great it really equipped me for everything and I look and I look back and I compare myself I know you shouldn't but to other people and other um, studies and I'm just like you know I think definitely got my money's worth (laughs) but yeah that was basically it um I have written something that 
I was asked to write for an article in the Physiotherapy Society of South Africa, um, just about how my community service went. So um, I'll just read that quickly for you, if you don't mind, because I can't articulate beautifully. No, um, no uh, so basically, I just wrote there was, the day our community service placements were released, I could feel every emotion possible that no analogy could do justice. Sitting amongst my colleagues who all had very unique reactions, I was hesitant to open the email in fear of disappointment. But click, and in that moment, all my wishes came true. I got my first choice. This feeling leaves me in awe every day. And just to elaborate on that, to get your first choice as a concert you know, is so rare. And just to have had Makia, which is where I come from, Yugi, but I practice in Makia, which is 20 kilometers away from each other, was just a dream come true. This is the community I grew up in. This is the community I wanted to, you know, give back to. So having that wish and dream and come true was just, it really was so amazing. Um, so I go on to say, growing up in the rural Eastern Cape, I always knew I wanted to help people, people who have physical restrictions in life as a consequence of health challenges. But these restrictions are more often than not uh, simply because they have never been provided the skills and knowledge to help themselves. This is a very big thing in, that I even learned more about and realized how big it was and during my year. So when I was younger, I sustained a back injury and was told I will not be able to do any physical activity again. So being in the rural Eastern Cape, I didn't question it. I was like, okay, that's it. You know, I didn't have knowledge or resources to any form of physio or stuff like that. But now, you know, this experience really allowed me to empathize with this rural community. And with my education, I now can make a difference, which is something that really just, you know, just it's so amazing. Becoming a physiotherapist has not only empowered me to continue to fuel my passion, um, but this passion also helps those. Sorry, man, and I read the wrong line. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> so, becoming a physiotherapist has not only empowered me, but continues to fuel the passion inside of me. The passion to help those who are left be feeling imprisoned by their health conditions, not knowing that there are skills and knowledge that can tear down those prison walls. So I was placed back in my home community, which only had, this was the second time ever, they had a concert physio or just a physio in general at this hospital. So it was just, it was as if every you know, every power in the universe came together and just put me there. It was so incredible. So being placed back in my home community, I thought things couldn't get better. But there were plenty ups and downs. And um, this period was really challenging in that I was, like I just said, the only physiotherapist. And often most times during your concert year, you have a superior that you can turn to for mentorship and whatever. And I was alone, obviously, by myself. So I did learn to really, like, think on my feet and stuff. But, you know, this whole experience made me really a lot more resilient and more passionate. You know, when, when you're really in the, the, the depths of it, you do get a better understanding. You know, one can see it, drive past it and be like, oh, you know, 
that's tough. But once you're actually in these people's homes and seeing how they're supposed to mobilize in a wheelchair or something like that, it really just, it makes me just so much, it's like that fire going that I want to make a difference. And so, yeah, many people ask me, why don't I just open my own practice, whatever. And I'm like, that's not what I want, guys. That's not, you know, yes, fine. I'm getting, now I'm unemployed because there's no post. But we'll get into that. And I'm waiting for my private practice number. But it's not what I want to do. That's not going to make me wake up in the morning and be like, yes, I love being a physio. Like, I don't, don't get me wrong, it's, it's still enjoyable, but it's to help people who know what physio is and help people who are coming and seeking for physio because they know they can get help. That's not what I enjoy. I enjoy going and seeing someone who has no idea what a physio is. They don't know that they can get help for whatever the condition is that they've been sent to me for. And just empowering them and giving that knowledge that actually, you know what, you don't have to be sitting every single day of your life because you got told you had arthritis. You can do so much more. And just watching them like blossom, if you will, is it's, it's just nothing can nothing can compare to that. It's just so empowering. It's so satisfied. It's like rewarding. And and so that's why I'm so determined to stick in this area for as long as possible and just continue to educate mostly. Yeah. I think you've got, no, you think got I think you just got such a strong why of why you want to do it that obviously we'll talk about some of the suggestions and stuff that you can come with uh, just so that you can continue uplifting and you know the community that you are in. Um, but you've touched on a couple of things which I think one for me, I don't really fully not I don't understand. I think I've got to understand it, obviously speaking to your brother and maybe other people which are sort of in the medical field or um, you know in the industry that you're in but you touched on obviously the term comserve and from what I understand this is not something that's mandatory everywhere around the world right not no no no, no, no not everywhere around the world yeah okay so hmm? no no explain yes I think so comserve right. basically is uh, it's a year in which all health practitioners whether you be dietitian uh, dentist, speech therapist, audiologist, no matter what you are, you have to serve a year in a government facility to, to basically give back. I don't know why. Don't ask. Actually, yeah. But we do get paid for it, obviously. Um, but it's sort of also an opportunity for us to um, get more experience before just letting us go. So it's where we get mentorship. It's where we can see cases that maybe we didn't see during our studying period where we get to just learn more and be on our and think on our feet, you know, because during varsity, yes, our last two years, we do work in hospitals and schools and community health clinics, but we're always being supervised. We're always having tests. We're always having assessed like assignments to do. But now when you get put in a com serve, so whether you place in a hospital, um, they're different uh, you get primary or secondary and tertiary um, but regardless where you are you now are independent and so that jump from being continuously supervised and having all these tests and whatever to being like, totally independent is a bit too big so I think like the comms sort of system is really good because it puts you sort of 
one step you know in the middle so that you you still have someone to go to and refer to if you're like struggling or whatever but it's not this continuous thing of you have someone looking over your shoulder so you actually build a lot of confidence during this period and it is I think rather vital many people are like oh it's your zoomer year you're giving back whatever but you know what at the end of the day we are health practitioners we healthcare workers it, sh it shouldn't really matter you're caring about people's health and I think it is a very vital system in place and yeah it's it's only a year <laughs> for some people it is longer for like doctors they have a whole different system but for your allied health it's one year and then you can apply for your independent practice number um, you can't practice independently during your concert year okay does that <laughs> yes, no, no it, it does, because I think that's where the clarity comes in, because a lot of the people which are maybe vocal about ComSurf are mostly doctors, and um, as you said, they might have a different situation. So, you know, I think speaking to Eileen, she mentioned something like three years, or I think two to three years, where they have to do that, and I was like, geez, okay, um, that's different. But I think the other part where I wanted you to maybe clarify was around this whole choice, because you were talking about placement, and Obviously, yeah. we understand what happens, but if someone doesn't really understand, um, because funny enough, some of the people that um, listen to this, actually more of the people that listen to this outside of SA, so um, they might not really understand the whole thing of placement um, because it almost seems like, and I'm just basically thinking of one of the physios that works with Imola in the Netherlands is sort of, you know, she finished, she went to do a practice sort of in the town that she studied in and she worked at the gym and then she can open up her own practice but there doesn't seem to be any maybe you can't say that there's no rural areas in the netherlands but it doesn't seem like there's that emotional roller coaster that you might have sort of um glanced over quickly but we obviously know how stressful that was um, between um the two of us so what is the whole system of um, choosing a placement or how you get to choose your placement and then i guess explain if do you really have much control of it or is it just really luck because you said the heavens came together to sort of give you what you wanted so what is that whole placement system so it is really complex well not really but you have no control whatsoever um it's just completely i think luck so you basically get you put your provinces obviously the south africa has how many provinces um, anyway, nine, you choose no, your <laughs> seven or nine. I don't know. Nine, I think nine. I know eleven so languages. You choose, your, yeah. <laughs> you choose your top three provinces, right? So you have a first choice province, second choice province, third choice province. Okay, so that's where you start, and then you have to have, um, like I said, you get primary healthcare, secondary healthcare, tertiary healthcare, and then rural. You have to have a rural option within your first choice province. You have to have this, like, no arguing that. Um, in all, though, you have to have selected three uh, primary healthcare facilities, okay? So you get, you're allowed to submit, if I remember correctly, six or seven places you would like to go. So your first choice would be wherever, right? But within those seven, it, you have to have three primary healthcare facilities, which are normally rural. Because um, primary healthcare basically means just your simple, basic, you know, hospital where if you 
break your leg, you get crutches or whatever like that. Secondary is more, you know, um, specialized. Then tertiary is you're very specialized. So, yeah, you have to have three. It doesn't matter which order you put them in. So, from there, you'll have – so, my first choice, for instance, was McClear, which is the closest hospital to where I live in Yugi. So, that's 20 kilometers away. Then you have to have a, a choice or an option in each of those three provinces that you selected. So you can't just be like, uh, yes, these are my three provinces, but I'm just, just put me somewhere in the Eastern Cape. No, you have to have a hospital in each of the provinces or uh, yeah, a position, if you will. So at the end of the day, you're going to have three provinces of which there has to be three primary healthcare facilities in your options and then the rest of sort of just what you want right so a lot of people put their first choice as like okay I studied it but so I can only really think of the German people but like Baragwanath Hospital or Tele, um, tele um, a lot of those tertiary hospitals are big hospitals but I mean the amount of people that apply for there is it's absurd so you do get shown like how many positions are open. So like at Barry, there were like three physio positions open, but then it also shows you, okay, but 15 people have applied. For, it's their first option. So the chances you sort of have to wait. Um, and then from there, that's how it goes. You submit that and it's totally up to the government how they place it. To be honest, I think they just like throw you anywhere there and look at the, the information. Um, and yeah, it's got nothing to do about where you live, nothing to do about where you studied, like nothing at all. This is why I say the fact that I got my first choice was quite um, amazing. It does, have, I think, play a role that there were only two other people that applied <laughs> on this place. Um, and it was my first choice. So having a first choice in the Eastern Cape, in rural, where there's only one position and only two other people applied for was quite, you know, the chances were high that I was going to get it, but still... Um, but for example, I mean, the current now conserve occupational therapist serving at McLeod Hospital didn't even have the Eastern Cape as one of her provinces, her preferred provinces. So it really is just the lack of the draw, basically, because you can be placed in literally, I mean, she never even knew about the trans guy, you know, and that's what we get a lot is that people don't actually know about these areas. And so in a way, okay, I'm speaking from a, if you will, privileged point of view. I think it's really cool, though, because it really forces you to step out of your comfort zone. Like, you don't know about this place, and now you're going there, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what is going to happen? I don't, I've never been there. And it just forces you to really become adaptable and more open-minded and stuff like that. And I think that's really to a part a good thing about the random selection. But you then have to think about people who have families or are married and stuff like that. Although they do say they do consider that, do they really? But yeah, so that's how the placement goes and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that there were, I think, you said primary, secondary, and tertiary. So mm. I'm guessing the amount of spots are limited when you go towards tertiary because you know that's obviously really specialized um, i'm guessing at a better location on your main cities or something like that so the bulk of the students that you were with will have to go towards rural areas right and 
I won't say what is the sentiment or feeling about it, knowing that they don't really have much of a choice, but is it something that you would find that everyone is um, happy about per se, or do people sort of wish the system would be, I guess, eradicated? Uh, so, yeah, like you said, most of, most of Joburg hospitals are tertiary and they do have like, obviously like three or four positions open. And those that do get placed in like random rural areas, <laughs> it's a tough question to answer though. Um, you know, they often are very like upset towards it and stuff like that. And, you know, what am I going to do there? This isn't what I want. You know, I want to be this, I want to do that. And I'm just like, you know, guys, give it a chance. You know, most of these people like not to badmouth anyone, but most of those that I studied with grew up in cities, grew up in like, you know, the privilege of having the accessibility to anything they need healthcare wise and don't really understand the impact and the importance of our profession in like the more rural areas and understanding that, listen, actually you, the physio, the actual therapist is the only thing they have access to. They don't have access to quickly running to the clinic for this or quickly running there for that, or, you know, going to a specialized hospital for TB or something. No, you are the one who's the specialized and, it really, for me, gives you such a sense of purpose and just appreciation that, you know what, what I'm doing is really important. It really is. And I'm doing things to help people live better and live healthier and live longer and be happier. I mean, quality of life is something that's so important to me. And I think people get so, you know, focused on I just want to be at Barra you know Barra is so cool that's where everyone goes to learn and that's where you know but forget about what about the person that's living 300 kilometers away from the nearest facility what are they going to do yes. all good and well yeah you can help those at Barra but do you, have you even considered that person that has to travel 200 kilometers to the nearest facility and has to pay their whole pension fund just to get there. And then they can't be helped because no, there's no therapist there. I mean, think of that. That is what really gets me. I mean, if you are so like focused, there will always be a physio at Barra, but there's not always going to be a physio at these rural areas. I'm saying physio because I'm a physio, but speaking about all adult health. Um, and at the end of the day, if we could really go back to like the, you know, those rural areas, the, the, where all the people are, we could limit or um, reduce the stress of these tertiary and secondary hospitals because we can, you know, have an influence a lot lower down and prevent or help reduce people, like the risk of people having to go to those areas. But because they're so far, there aren't any facilities available they end up over flooding or overwhelming like the Baraguanic hospital because they never had access to it closer to them whereas if we could come and just give that access can you imagine like the huge impact it will have on these bigger hospitals you know and also just the huge impact will have on that person's health like for instance if they get a dog bite okay if you have a facility that's close to you, the chances of you getting better, like 
okay, they're going to treat you, whatever, whatever. Cool. You're good. We dress it. You can go home here. Crutches don't stand on it. Versus, okay, now I got bitten by a dog, but I don't have anything close to me. I have to now wait for two days time for my pension or my grant or any money to come in so that I can travel all the way to this hospital and then get the help that I need, hoping I'll get the help that I need because a lot of time patients are turned away because it's too busy. By that time, it's now the third day of a dog bite. We're going septic. And what's going to happen? I mean, you're going to lose the limb. You can get sepsis, just like a general sepsis infection, which is often life-threatening. And it's something so simple. And it's in terms that it could have been avoided if we just bridged that gap. You know, and that's why I feel like community healthcare is so, so important. That just being there to prevent these extremes from happening, it's, it's, it's something that's not actually so difficult to put in place, but it's something people don't realize that they can, you know, they, they don't want to put themselves in that place, you know, because they say, so, oh, but I want to work at this big, awesome hospital where I can watch surgeries and stuff. But where my passion is more like, but I can prevent them from having to have to have a surgery, yes. you know. They always teach us prevention is better than treatment. And that's why I feel like there should be so many more posts in rural areas, in community health. There should be community health programs where you educate and make people aware because, you know, a lot of the patients I get, for example, uh, you come in, obviously you ask general questions like what medication are you on? And mo I mean, the population here is mostly high blood pressure, diabetes and arthritis. So you're like, okay, do you take medicine for it? Yes, no, I do. Okay, do you know what the medicine's doing? No. Do you know what high, what high blood pressure is? No. And I'm like, okay. So, so why do you take the, the medication? No, because I was told I must. And that frustrates me. That frustrates me so, so much. And because if you just give them the knowledge and to understand that, listen, Simple lifestyle changes can make you less dependent on this medication, you know, and it can make you more active or make have less pain for a day or during the days. You can also, again, reduce the stress on the healthcare system. You know, if, if one has a better understanding, so for example, I'm going to use where I am again, a lot of people have high blood pressure and it's poorly controlled because all they know is to take this tablet but continue to live these unhealthy lifestyles because they don't know any better. They think the tablet's meant to fix it, where in the meantime, it's just trying to control or manage it, you know. So they, they continue living these lifestyles, and then all of a sudden, three months later, they're in the hospital because they had a stroke. And we're now confused. Why did we have the stroke? And you look and you're like, okay, but how were you living? you know, continues to live a life where they very do bare minimum, eating very high, high um, carbohydrate diets, which understandably, yes, this area is going to be that, but we can adapt it, you know, and just, just continue to live a poor lifestyle where it can be changed by doing simple things. Like I always emphasize to my patients, I'm not telling you to go buy something, 
that's expensive. I'm not asking you to do anything radical that's going to cost you because money is a problem here. You know, it's just simple things, not eating two starch, two starches on one plate. I'm not telling you not to buy your pup or your rice. It's fine, eat it. But just be aware that you can't eat them at the same time and you need to limit how many you eat in a day. And, you know, those sort of things. Um, and that's why I feel like community empowerment is so important because it really will reduce the stress that it puts on the health system in general. If the people in the communities could understand and be given the skills, you know, to live a healthier lifestyle, I really do believe that the health system could, you know, just function a lot better in the sense that they won't be so overwhelmed. But that's my opinion. <laughs> and that's where my passion comes in, is that community education and just really empowering people. I'll definitely step back to that, that, that um, point that you brought across, but it was also quite empowering to hear that there are things that people can be doing and these are simple things that don't cost a lot of money but you said such a lot such so many things there which was amazing and i just wanted to maybe break down one part where i think it was it was there were two points that you made um, earlier which was now obviously um in, in in the long explanation about the better system that we could have in place but the other thing i wanted to find out was i think you mentioned the fact that if you open your practice if you had to go the private route, obviously, it'll be for people that will already know what a physio is. And I think also now, when I went to, on a trip to Zambia, I was explaining that my housemate is a chiropractor and people are like, well, we don't know what a chiropractor is. So, you know, you definitely get to a point where people also don't know either what a physio is or the difference between a physio and a bio, which for me, I know there's a difference, but I'm not exactly um, sure what the, I guess, the degree of separation is between the two. So I would say the one thing would be, would be nice to explain what it is that you do. I think, okay, let's start with the differences between a physio and a bio and what it is that you do, let's say on a day-to-day -day basis. Cause I think you've touched on obviously patient visits, um, obviously mm -hmm. suggestions that you've done, but what is it that you actually do on a day-to-day -day basis and how does that differentiate from a biokineticist? Okay. So obviously because I work rural, it would be quite different, but let me explain it in like just general because people do often confuse a bio to a physio. And how I like to explain it is it, it's an area that's very overlapping. So when it comes to chiros, physios, and bios, all things do overlap. Okay. And it's it's going to overlap, but it's just understanding like where your place is and not trying to overstep too much with you know out of your scope, which is what happens. A lot and that's why the people seem to think that these three um, professions can't work together which is absolute nonsense in my opinion but anyway okay so a physio there are many different um, departments if you will um, yeah things that you can go into in physio so you get sports physio you get cardiopulmonary physio you get peds you get neuro you get community health orthopedics so there's so many different routes you can go into physio which a lot of people don't actually understand as soon as you say physio to the normal person they're gonna be like oh massage or oh the sports and I'm like no I hate that part sort of a thing you know so if you had to compare a bio to a physio the only at I can't say only but the one the main area in which 
they are seen to be very similar is the neuromusculoskeletal area, which is your sports or your, you know, your injuries and stuff. And so how I like to explain it is like a physio is the person that's going to see you when you're injured, right? We are going to rehab you to the point where you no longer have pain, okay? Although I have the knowledge to get you to being, let's say, for instance, as fast as you were prior to your injury, but I'm not going to do it because I have a bio-K that I can refer you on to, who a bio-K is amazing at, okay, you might still have a little nickels here and there, they work with that and then really get you to being even better than you were prior to your injury. So they do that end stage rehab, right? And they get you to just, they do great stuff. They exercise, they understanding on biomechanics of the body and biokinetics, which is what they are, is incredible, you know, and I'm not going to, like, for sure, it's probably better than what I know. So why not use them? You know, let me give them more opportunity. The problem comes in often is that people don't know the difference. And so they go to, let's say, for instance, a bio-K when they've injured something. And then the bio-K now has to do that um, acute treatment. Yes, fine, they've been taught about it. But is it going to be as the quality that I've been taught about it? You know? And that's what I'm saying. I've been taught biomechanics and I've been taught biokinetics in stage rehab. But if it's not really something I'm very passionate and gone and done most um, courses in, I'm rather going to send you to a bio-K because they obviously that's what they do. And in the same sense, that's where I would um, really appreciate a bio-K being like, okay, you sprained your ankle, let's go to physio first, you know. So the physio can... For the pain relief first. Yes, for the pain relief. And while you're still in that really acute phase, which is normally like the first two weeks, Mm -hmm. post that, like by all means, go to your bio-K because they can do rehab training. Um, And so, yeah, they overlap there a lot. And knowing, you know, where the line is, is very vague, if you will. But where we differ a lot is now when we go into like chest physio. So, I mean, they're not, they're not taught to go and do oxygen therapy on patients or do suctioning on patients. They aren't taught to do, um, I can't say they aren't taught, but like people who have sustained strokes and stuff like that, the, the um, task planning, the um just basic day-to-day adaptions that you have to do for your new um inability if you will and peas as well you know dealing with patients who have um, cerebral palsy they don't really go into those sort of things so that's where we differ quite a lot but if you want to just stick to like nms neuromusculoskeletal we can overlap and then get the Cairo, obviously, where people go to Cairo because I have back pain and stuff. And I support Cairo's, I love Cairo's. But if your back keeps going out, there's a reason to it. And that's where I feel like a physio should come in, note where is this imbalance in the muscles, because that's the reason the, the bones aren't being held in place. And finding that, working on that, and once you're at the point where you're able to sustain it, go to your bio-K to make it even stronger. I hope that sort of answered that. Oh, thank you. It really simplifies it, I guess. And 
that's probably the most thorough explanation I've ever got from someone. Um, I think as much as you think that you can't articulate these things, I think that was, you know, um, really good um, because now I really understand if at any point in time I get an injury or something has to happen, I go to the physio first to, for the pain relief up until a certain point. I need the bio to say, well, I was pushing certain levels. How do I get back there or even super exceed those things? And then, then that's really the differentiator between the two, which sort of makes sense why yeah. schools maybe might have a biokineticist for like rugby teams um, and stuff like that because they want them to help them push past certain limits. But then at the same time, though, maybe they don't have the budget to employ the physio. And then that's where you get, as you said, you, he can, he or she can do both, but then you get overlapping um, sort of ideas to what a physio and what a bio is. So that, that actually explains a lot. Yeah. The other thing that gets to me also, like that I've noticed here in this area is that as soon as someone has an issue, so let's say, oh, my ankle sore, my, I don't know, my shoulder sore. The first thing they do here, because obviously not a lot of people know what a physio is, they haven't had access to a physio, is they go to a doctor, right? Now, yes, doctors, I mean, they're amazing. They learn about so much that I, I could not know. Um, they're immediately going to refer you to a specialist because yes, they can see there's a problem, but they taught medically how to treat things. So they're going to send you to a specialist. When you go to a surgical specialist, more likely than not, they're going to want to operate. Yeah. Okay. And post-operation, you need rehab, but we live in the rurals. And so this isn't really, you know, made clear to these people. And so what where I feel like the physiotherapy role is really important in this kind of area. And I think to most people, like just having a better understanding what a physio is, once you have like a sore ankle or a niggle in your shoulder or whatever, go to your physio first, because we are trained to look and at the muscles, at the bones, at the nerve system and how it's moving, not only the shoulder, but in relation to the hip and to to how you walk and stuff like we we are trained to look at the whole body and not just that my shoulder sore you know and before you like just jump into going to a, a surgeon let's first see maybe it's something really simple like muscular imbalance you know and that can be that can be treated and not a lot of people understand that that once you have any form of pain first go to your physio you know if your physio is then like yo bro i don't know hey Maybe you should go to the doctor. Maybe you should go to a specialist. Then do that. But a lot of most of the the cases I've seen in this area where people have gone for surgeries, in my opinion, could have been avoided had they gone to physiotherapy sessions. Um, and I'm not trying to take away from any form of surgeon because they definitely have their place. But some situations really could be avoided. Like you don't have to have an operation on everything, you know. And then the, even the worst part of it all is that they had the surgery, come back home and no physio or no form of rehab. And then you're like, now they stuck with, you know, I had a sore shoulder and I went for the surgery, but now it's still sore and I can't move it half as much as I could prior to the surgery. And I'm like, if you think about it, an operation is huge amount of trauma. You know, it's cutting through skin, muscles, nerves, vessels, everything like you have to teach all of that stuff to move again. And a lot of the times I spend most of my sessions just educating on the 
the way that tissue heals again and why it's important that yes it's painful but you 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 have to move through a set amount of pain you know you don't want to be crying and stuff but it's so important that you give these tissues enough amount of stress so they know how long they must be or how strong they must be so yeah people often don't realize the the importance of physio we are based or i would like to think we the we're not the doctor, but the, the profession you go to when there's something painful on your body. Because uh, I just think even just, and as I said, maybe it comes to education awareness. I won't even say maybe marketing or anything like that, but that's why I guess you're supposed to have some sort of um, sanctioned body which organizes these type of things in terms of systems to so say someone comes in to a practice or something like that where they say, okay, you know what, this is the problem that I have. The first thing that they say, okay, go down, turn left, go to the physio first, because I can think of, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, family, friends and stuff like that, they've had back injuries or all of a sudden their back is wrong. And the first thing that they do is they go to the doctor and then now they've had operation number one, operation number two, operation number three. Uh, maybe they might know of a chiro because they just think chiro and back. But, you know, as you said, maybe it's a, it's an imbalance. Um, it, it is something small that they could tweak before they have to actually t- take this, life-altering surgery and people aren't really aware of that um but i think moving now on to a lot of the things that you spoke about with with respect to suggestions of how we can make things better so obviously you're quite passionate about this you've got your strong reason why you love being in the rural community you you know it drives you it makes you wake up every single day to the point where even you don't even not that you don't want to but obviously the whole private practice thing doesn't really even fulfill you in that sense or the idea of it so we obviously mentioned or alluded to the fact that you are in effect basically unemployed now. Um, so how exactly did that come about? What exactly went wrong? Um, and obviously this is obviously not on your side. It became a situation that you made me aware of the fact that I think 200 staff within the Eastern Cape have been sort of um, let go because they don't have posts. But how does that happen, especially when there's such a big need for all of these allied workers? Um, to be helping, especially in places like rural communities? How does that happen? Uh, That's a question you would like to answer to as well. (laughs) But um, in basic, so for me, uh, the biggest problem is our hospital, because it's a a community health centre, there only X amount of posts allocated to the hospital that are funded right so yes we get comms but comms are funded national through the national budget so now what happened was um the comms of i wanted to stay on permanently um as a physiotherapist but within those positions our hospital has been allocated there is no form of rehab nothing which to me does blows my mind I don't know who's supposed to prescribe the crutches I don't know who's supposed to help this person after they had a stroke like it's mind-boggling because this is like the beginning of the whole system like this is within the community and you're telling me you don't want to allocate people that can help you know anyway so I mean I've tried we phoned different hospitals to see if I could be employed by them but then based um or in McClear, but none of that was available. Um, we were, um, how can I say, 
the previous years, for quite a few years, they've been what you call post-concert placements, right? So these are all hospitals in the Eastern Cape that still have posts available and that they're not given to post-concerts such as myself, whether you be a speechy, audiologist, OT, physio, dietitian, whatever you are. Um, but late end of November, we were told that all these positions were terminated due to the lack of funds. And so we sit here and we're like, what? And not only have these positions been terminated, but people who were in, okay, let me give you an example. Um, there's a hospital that had three OTs, okay? Two of them were permanent post concerts and one is a concert, okay? So now they're saying they've terminated all post concert posts. That means these two OTs, their posts have gone which leaves only one OT to run a department that was previously run by three. So I'm just like, you're telling me you want a comserve, a person straight out of varsity, to now run a department that has a client base that can sustain, like that's worth three therapists. Like it's just, to me, it's so mind boggling. Um, but you know, the thing is, well, I, for me, it's as if the people at the top don't actually care you know we write appeals we we motivate we do all this and they just come back there's no funds there's no funds there's no funds and what are you supposed to do when you this small at the bottom and they're telling you know we just don't have the money for you there's only so much we can do you know I've gone to the CEO of my hospital I've like pleaded I've begged up everything and there's just nothing he can do because he's so low down and so now a lot of us are left without jobs because we were we promised and we rely on these post-concert jobs um, and it was just taken away from us just like that. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating and I can only imagine the frustration for bursary holders because, you know, the government gives people bursaries, right, saying we will pay for your four years of study. In return, you need to now please practice or be employed by the Eastern Cape government for four years. Only then can you then get your independent practice number, et cetera, et cetera. And now they're telling us there's no posts, which means that there are no posts for these bursary holders. These bursary holders are legally tied to the Eastern Cape Department of Health. They not, yeah. may not practice. Yeah, they may not practice outside the Eastern Cape Department of Health, but now there are no posts to employ them. I'm just like, you, the government, the Department of Health has put in so much money to educate them. That's like an investment. And now you don't want, you said you're going to use them. Fine, they agree to that. But now you don't want to. But then you're depriving them of any opportunity to go and make a living because now you've taken the post away from them. I mean, that is just to me the, the most inhumane thing, even. I'll yeah. go as far as to say inhumane because. It's, it's you, you're giving them no like ability to fend for them, like get employment, to feed their families. Do you know how many people that the, of these people have to send money back home yeah. or their salary is the salary, you know? And so actually on my, tomorrow, we, most of us allied health workers are going to Bishu and we, who's the head of the Eastern Cape department. And we're going to, you know, put these, um, problems forward to them and just be like this is unacceptable you can't promise us positions 
and then just take them away because they've now taken away positions within government sectors, which now cannot be filled. And they haven't taken them away in, in a sense that they've closed the positions, they've frozen the positions, which means that these positions are funded for, but they are not open for application. Why? We would like to know. So obviously one then speculates, well, then the money is being put somewhere else yeah. or whatever, you know, I won't get into that. But why, what happened to that money? Because the budget has been drawn up to fund for all these positions, right? Now they've been frozen because there's no money. But the money was there. It was up in the budget that we have the money to pay this position, each position. Yeah. So it, it's very frustrating. And these are the answers we are going tomorrow to look for um, and really hoping that they hear us and will give our positions back. For me, in my sense, um, yes, I'm unemployed. I'm waiting for my private practice number. Although, I, you know, it's not really what I want to do. I do have to make a living. I have the privilege of at least getting a private practice number. Grocery holders don't. I mean, I do stand to be corrected, but that is my understanding because I've been on the groups and stuff. Um, but now my hospital that I was working at has been left with no physio because the comserve that was placed there declined the post. So I have a client base of over 500 patients who I've been seeing and who I see that I, I can't help them. I mean, every I went in last week because I needed to do a few things and people come and they've been phoning and they, they physically come into the hospital, spend their money, like, I need an appointment, when can I see you? And it's the most heartbreaking thing to be like, I'm sorry, I don't have a post. I can't help you right now. You know, I'm really trying and there's no physio. So what must I tell them to do? You know, yeah. go to the next town, which is going to even cost them more money and where they're not guaranteed to be helped. It's, 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 so, it's so destroying that I can't help these people. And legally, I also can't do it. You know, I can't be helping them if I'm not employed by the government. You know, I would love to be, okay, let's go, chap. I would love to work for free, but I have no legal protection, you know. So as much as I love giving giving to the people, I do have to protect myself at the end of the day as well and also realize I need an income. So there are, like, suggestions I've put up that I'm waiting for a response to. I've sort of just told, oh, we need a board meeting waiting to have a board meeting and then I'll raise your suggestion and then I'll ask when is that uh, well, I'll let you know so sort of like your issues are never taken very seriously in this this it seems in the department of health in eastern cape um it's you know it's always brushed off or you know it's like oh we'll get to that and it's, it's so irritating because my the ceo of the hospital I worked at told me that all these people in the department of health at issue are all medical doctors right so they're all employed like or or have their degree in medicine and for me if you are a medical a healthcare worker a medical practitioner you go into this in my mind to help people right why like for me it boggles my mind why else would you do it but anyway 
How can you then sit at the head office seeing that there are so many people going without, but you would rather just be like, oh, you know what, we'll do, you know, just relax, we'll deal with it. But not doing, actually doing anything about it because you just, there's those funds that maybe you could get or whatever. I don't want to blame anyone for anything, but yeah. So it, I'm like, surely if you're so passionate about helping people, you would be doing everything in your means to get these allied health workers and doctors employed again to help your people because you know the impact this is going to have. I mean, there are people now, for instance, I always refer to where I work because that's just where I know there is no other person practitioner in the hospital that is legally allowed to prescribe a walking aid to a patient. So, which means like crutches or walking from whatever. So if you go break your leg now and you're not supposed to walk on that limb that's broken, there's no one there to give you crutches. So what must they do? You know, and, and this is what makes me so angry is that it's an easy solution. It's a quick fix. Just put a physio in there, right? But they just don't because they don't. And I think a lot of those that are high up don't understand the actual roles of each of these allied health people. And it's something I expressed that doctors are incredible. Like, obviously, they are so important. But at the end of the day, a doctor isn't going to be there to teach you how to walk with crutches. A doctor isn't going to be there to teach you how to communicate after you've had a stroke and now you can't speak. They're not going to help you learn new ways to get dressed. And I don't expect them to. That is the, the very important part. I don't expect them to because that's why allied health professions were created. Because we are here to work as a team, to treat patients, to get them to their highest quality, like standard of living, highest level of independence, you know. I, I would never expect a doctor to try to teach a patient to walk with crutches. Like, I wouldn't. But in the same way, a doctor would never expect me to go and do a lumbar puncture. You know, we all have our role in the medical, in, in the system, you know. And I like to see it as like one cannot be there without the other yeah. if you want quality, optimal health care. And I feel like that is something that is a bit blurred to those above. They're not seeing that as clearly as us who are unemployed and so passionate about helping these people. You know, and yeah, after tomorrow, maybe I can give you more answers to that question. But yeah, it just seems as if no one really cares about, for me, what's more irritating is they don't really care about the people. Like, you know, surely this is you there, Eastern Cape Department of Health. You are there for the, you know, the 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 to just make health better for everyone in your 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 province. But now you just go and you don't care. You just let the people go without. That I, I can't. It does. I can't fathom. I don't understand. It's just atrocious to me. How far removed are the people which are at the top making these decisions from what's actually happening there? Is it something that where, you know, they've just got cushy office jobs and they sit in meetings and, you know, how often do they actually come through, walk through the wards, actually see what is going on for them to be like, before I make this drastic decision to cut 200 jobs, let me actually see what the need is for these 200 jobs. 
how far removed from that are they making this? Okay, obviously you won't know if they're making these decisions based on statistics or if it's just a simple money thing, but do they actually at least spend time on the ground floor with you guys? The year that I spent during my conserve, not one person ever came to our rehab department to see how we do or look at our numbers or anything like that. And as a matter of fact, no one in our, even our hospital comes and does that. The CEO of the hospital, the matrons, no one has really come and been like, okay, let's see, like, what do you do? Like, what are your needs? What is your, what are your stresses? Your patient to therapist ratio sort of a thing. Like, as a physio, I'm in so much demand that I actually hardly get time to go to the wards because there's so many other people that I need to see. Um, but no one, no one really recognizes that. Yes, the doctors do because obviously we work as a team. But those that are higher above and those that are able to have more of an influence don't actually, you know, they don't understand. And I mean, I often said I wish I could get the person in charge just to spend a day with me. But I mean. I wouldn't even attempt to like present that idea because I know I'm going to be laughed off and be like, oh, I'm too busy. Or how do you, th you know, there are other things I need to do. You can't expect me just to watch you sort of a thing. But I don't know if they really understand what we do. Do they really understand the difference between an OT and a physio? And like, I've never seen any person from Bishop come to our hospital in the sense of like actually joining and coming in and seeing what we're doing if they come they go straight to the admin block and that's where they stay I mean a, a beautiful example is obviously Bishu the head of the Eastern Cape Department um, Health sends us stuff right for the hospital facilities or whatever um, um, consumables right and we often well the hospital often got uh, packages of equipment that there's no one in the hospital that can use it, right? This is not like, like small things. Yes, they're small things, but it's surgical equipment worth like 300,000 Rand that is just now sitting there because no one can use it because we don't have any surgeons in the hospital. Yes, we have a whole surgery per se with all this expensive equipment that we've now been sent because Bishu decided to send it. But if they actually thought about it and looked at what we have and the employees they, that's there, they can see there's no one that can do surgery because the doctors we have are general practitioners. They aren't surgeons. They're not specialized. So why on earth did you send us half a million rands worth of equipment if it's not going to be used? Yeah. Like you see, so that's like that simple thing of you're not paying attention. You're not looking at stuff. I think it's it also goes to show speaking to a lot of friends of mine who've left engineering um, in South Africa um, to go study. And I think it's more like between 70 or 80% of um, my close friends that studied with me, study engineering with me, do not work as engineers because of similar frustrations of, and I think it comes down to where management need to make management decisions. And that's great. Obviously, they go to business schools and they go get their MBAs and all those type of type of things, but they're also very far removed from what's actually happening. And some of the decisions that they make are great financial decisions at the time. They flow, they, they solve the cash flow thing. And it's in theory great, but down on the floor, you get a lot of backlash because these suggestions do not work. These things do not work. You can't simply just make it based on a number, a simple calculation. And that's a lot of frustration for 
I think not only obviously engineers, I think this is across the board in a lot of industries where you get people who sit at the top who are out of touch with reality. They do not um, spend time on the shop floor or obviously in the wards, as you say, to actually see, well, I have got this money to invest, but how do we best invest it? By actually seeing, by sitting time or spending time with people like you to say, okay, fine, this is your process. Is there ways where we can invest to make this simpler so we can get more people, to reach, not, not just getting more people, but at least, you know, make this efficient enough so that we can at least thrive as a hospital or thrive as a company. Where you, that's what I'm saying. You, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and obviously it's a huge assumption, which um, I stand to be corrected on, but you obviously maybe find out more when you go in your March tomorrow to find out that what is the basis of making these decisions? Is it thumb sucking it? Is it as much as they keep on saying, oh, we've got no finance? How do they get to the point that they don't have finances? Do they overemploy in one certain area? As you said, it seems like there's a lot of cost saving measures that can be placed there. Why would you need certain equipment if they aren't surgeons within your area? Um, is it that fine they need a, a they've got a plan to eventually employ surgeons then fine employ the surgeon first and then get the equipment you know it doesn't it it, it really sometimes also leads to incompetence and incompetence not to say that they're not well educated as you said a lot of these guys are doctors and stuff like that but incompetence to actually see and tie what is going on in real life versus what it is that they've learned in textbooks no, I mean, and that's for sure. And it's seen not only at the top, but throughout the levels. I mean, yeah, I think ha have you had you, if they get someone each month to come and actually see what the needs are, they would understand that actually, if we invest this money in rather purchasing, okay, I'm thinking rehab, uh, you know, more equipment for rehab, that would actually benefit the community more than this two, 300,000 round machine that's never been used. And that's that's what's lacking is that people often don't want to do that. They just don't want to do anything. It's fine. It's nice just sitting and drawing up numbers. But as soon as you ask to go out into the field, it's like, mm, you know, I don't know about that sort of thing. And I feel that is where passion comes in. I do feel that's where passion comes in. And in this industry, that like the health industry, I feel a lot of people have studied and got into these positions because they can. And that's where the money is. But we see the, the, the consequence of a lack of passion because of that. Because you have, for instance, nurses, you know, that are nurses because that's what they could do. You go into a ward and patients are looked after atrociously just because there's no care, there's no passion. I'm doing this because this is paying my bills and this is the job I could get. You know, it's not I'm doing this because I want to help people and I'm really passionate about, you know, making sure they have optimal care and I, I feel that passion is such an important thing and the other the sad part is if you work in a facility like I have for a prolonged period your passion starts to die down you know it starts to dim because it's just not nothing ever gets done correctly and you're the only one that's always trying and you're always trying to motivate you're always trying to do this and nothing you getting nothing in you know as a response and You've, I mean, in instance, I've done so much in-service training and, you know, I've taught them how to do this, taught them how to do that. And the next day they go and do the complete opposite of what I've taught. I'm just like, well, then what, what's the point? You know, and then people are often left, like, why do I bother then? You know, and, and so sad because what, what do you do? You know, you, you, you can't be there and inject passion into someone or inject, you know, motivation. It's, it's, 
just because I've, and again management comes hugely into play that especially as I see my hospital like it's a lot nicer to sit and just chill than to go and do patient ward rounds I mean the amount of times I've been in the ward needing a, a nurse or sister and there's been no one I mean no one in that ward and you've got what over 50 patients lying there and there's no one there it's atrocious it's absolutely but why are they doing that they clearly feel that they can and so they clearly don't feel threatened or don't feel any form of um what's this word i'm looking for um you know where, where you you have to do it because that's your job you know there's there's no consequence to these bad behaviors you know no one's there sitting on their head like dude you can't take an hour and a half lunch that's not how it works you know, there are no consequences to that. There's no one making sure that these, you know, rules or guidelines are put into place. And I think that is a huge problem across the whole of the Eastern Cape. And I don't know about the other um, provinces, but in this province, it is a huge thing that people just sit and there's no consequences to you not doing your job because everyone else is also sitting. I think it's one of those things where I read this once where they said that the people in your organization, the way they behave or, you know, your employees or if you feel that there's something wrong with them, it's a reflection of leadership. So the reason they feel that they can act that way and they can do those things and it's fine to do it is because leadership is doing the same thing. If your leaders are walking through the wards and actually making sure people, okay, there's no way for someone to just decide, you know what, yeah, the boss or the, the CEO is, 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 is walking through here. I'm still going to take an hour and a half lunch. I'm going to walk inside there and it's going to be fine for him to actually see that, hey, you know what, there's no one here for 50 patients. Since he allows it, since he's okay with it, they're also going to be okay with it. So whatever it is that they have as an issue is obviously as a reflection of leadership. And I laughed the, the other day, I think Cyril, uh, our president, tweeted that, oh, um, you know, to move forward, we need a strong leadership and we need people to act in certain ways. And I was like, well, the first person that needs to do that is you. You can't be requesting it from everyone else except for you at the end of the day. And when you come to, I'm guessing, when you have your speeches and your discussions and stuff like that, you just have to say, listen, yeah, people aren't anyway because you guys aren't. Everything that you see as a problem, if, if they've got 10,000 problems that they see and list as why they have, have to close these type of things, you must actually go back to them and say, listen, yeah, everything that you've complained about here, all the issues that you have here are a reflection of you guys. You have led us into the situation. You have led us to the point where, you know, people have to be contractually bound to a position that they do not hold. They cannot open their private practice because they've never actually done their comms surveys because they're on a post and they cannot move elsewhere. They have actually let everyone down. Um, and they're going to try to externalize it and say it's the market, it's the pandemic, all that kind of stuff. No, um, you're supposed to prepare for these things before they happen. Um, if you were acting in, in, I guess, serious ways and competent ways before this, you could have ridden out that way because the demand is still there. And this is from the government. Um, there is money there. There is money to make sure this doesn't happen. But the fact that it has happened means that it's a clear reflection of what has happened to or, or of their competence as leaders at the end of the day. And I really, really hope that tomorrow's uh, March and meeting brings you a lot of luck. Um, is there any sort of ways that, I don't know if you guys have formed groups or, um, you know, um, I know you've obviously shared a few Facebook posts and stuff like that, where people want to get behind and support 
this movement and you know to try rectify the problem are there sort of associations or groups or something that people can support and join so at the moment we are just using the hashtags of essentially unemployed and then employee uh, i'll have to clarify the, name, the the second one but we at this stage we're just trying to get um social media impact via the hashtags and the posts that I have shared that I can avoid to you again. Yes. Um, I think from tomorrow we will have more clarity about more of these groups because at the stage it's still kind of a new thing. We have They did March last week and the department just phoned them to be like, oh, let's try this. You know, no written, nothing formal. And that's why we're going game because that's not acceptable. Um. But yeah, so we basically, the main hashtag is essentially unemployed and our posts that we post that have like the statistics of everything, um, if you just repost those, because as many times as we can get it shared, the more, obviously, the higher up it's going to be in your homepage and the more people can see and just tagging Eastern Cape Heart, um, Eastern Cape Department of Health. Twitter is a huge platform, obviously, if you have a huge Twitter um impact or influence you know sharing those kind of things sharing our posts on those platforms would be super super helpful and go a long way after tomorrow i think we'll be able to you know give more substance or more um what's the word i'm on the thing um i do think there'll probably be media coverage coverage um so you know tuning into that at we're going there at nine. Don't know what time we'll start and that stuff. But as soon as, yeah, as soon as I get more information, I'll definitely share it with you. It's just really important that we get the, you know, issue, the people there to actually take responsibility for what they have done for these incompetent decisions they've made and the huge amount of lives they impact not only of the practitioners but actually of the community of the people of the eastern cape that rely so heavily on us you know and that's what we want we want them to be responsible and be accountable for the huge impact their decision has now made there needs to be a form of accountability and it's, it's that is what we really are after well for me i could say that's what i really am looking for is just them to be accountable for and this huge mess they've made and you know really just using like you say coming into these facilities and seeing where the finances are needed yeah. thanks so much Tara for explaining what it is that you do um, all the work that you have done for the people of the Eastern Cape that um, appreciates and you've obviously been able to change a lot of lives thanks for explaining um, the differences between a physio and a bio and obviously the cause in which you are obviously trying to, you're obviously a big leader in trying to rectify these things so that people can still benefit from, um, you know, a system that has been put in place, which seems like it is, it is, it is good in order to just not only for yourself, but also for the communities that it affects. And I just want to thank you for that and for sharing the story and um, wish you a lot of luck going forward for tomorrow, not only for tomorrow, but for the future and um, the passion that, drives you is definitely seen and heard by everyone that's going to hear this and even for the people which you are going to bump into and meet um, we thank you for your contribution to the community thanks so much big brother appreciate that and 
yeah, hope that all goes well. And thanks for the support. And I hope that everyone out there gets a good understanding. I think definitely we got a good understanding. Thanks so much, Donna. Okay, thanks, Anna. Thank you.